The law brings an intimate, personal awareness of my own sin. Not only can I not earn justification by myself by keeping God's law, but even my best attempts to do so only point back at my guilt. They highlight my sin even more. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What's the purpose of God's law for you if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ? How about if you are a believer? Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part four of Your Day in Court. As we conclude our study in Romans chapter three, you'll be reminded that God himself would declare you responsible before his law, guilty with no defense, abiding under his just wrath forever, hopeless to change your status or to do anything to make yourself acceptable to him. But as you'll discover today, God does not leave us without hope. Your depravity is actually meant to drive you to the only hope in the world, Jesus Christ. So where is your hope? Let's join our teacher for more right now on The Word Unleashed. Jonathan Edwards, who preached arguably the most famous sermon in American history, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, tried to capture our precarious position. By the way, most people misunderstand Edwards. It's like he took some sadistic delight in what he was preaching. Nothing could be further from the truth if you read Edwards. He was passionately concerned for the people to whom he preached, and he wanted them to understand just how dangerous their position was and urged them to be reconciled to God. And so he described the precarious position and the reality of impending judgment as if each one of us were a loathsome spider suspended even now as we live our lives here over the pit of hell by the hand of God. And he described it, as though we were suspended over hell by a single thread that could easily break at any moment. His point was, life can go so quickly, and we are in an awfully precarious circumstance because we live under and abide under the wrath, the just anger of God. Most people want to ignore this. They don't want to talk about the wrath of God. In fact, if you talk about anything about hell or the wrath of God, you're called a hellfire and damnation preacher as though you take some sadistic joy in these things. Listen, there's, there's nothing harder to speak about. There's nothing harder for you to hear. But this is the reality. This is truth. This is what Jesus taught. Either he spoke the truth or he was a liar. But this is what he taught. Very unpopular, even in churches. But it's a reality. John 3.36 says the wrath, the just anger of God is continually abiding even today over those who don't know Christ. When I was growing up, there were 10 of us, 10 uh, siblings in my family. And when the Sunday paper arrived, we all dove for the part we wanted. And I hate to admit this to you, but I always wanted the comics. And uh, there, was a, there was a comic strip in those days, doesn't run anymore, where there was, a, there was a character who walked around, and everywhere he walked, he had this thundercloud just over him. It's like everywhere he walked, he took his cloud with him. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you live today and every day of your life under the looming storm of the just anger of God. It abides on you today, John says. But his wrath will be shown in its greatest fury when someday you will be resurrected along with all other unbelievers and you will stand individually, personally, just you before your creator. And he will hold you responsible for the life you have lived. He will judge you based on his law and he will find you guilty without defense. And you will be banished to eternal punishment. Again, this is what the scriptures teach. Look at Romans chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 2. Romans 2, verse 4. Paul says, Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience? God's good to you. You have all these things you enjoy. I've got a good life. I've got a nice car. I have a nice house. I have a good job. I'm succeeding. Things are going well. I'm enjoying, enjoying life. God must be okay with me. Paul says, you're missing the point. You don't know, verse 4, that the kindness of God is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up God's anger for yourself in the day of his anger and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is what God says. This is the reality. John the Baptist preached this message, Luke 3, 7. He warned them to flee from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 describes Jesus as the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. In Revelation chapter 20, that day of judgment is described. I saw a great white throne, John writes, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. That's the record of your life. That's every thought you have ever had. That's every word you have ever spoken. That's every act you have ever performed. All recorded in the omniscient mind of God and brought out to convict. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire which burns forever. This is what the scriptures teach. We abide without Christ under God's just anger. In other words, if you're not a Christian, you are living right now on death row and you have no appeals left. The day of judgment is in one sense just a formality. That brings us to verse 20. And the fourth element of the divine verdict, we are hopeless before the divine standard. We can't do anything about our circumstance. Verse 20 says, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Paul doesn't quote an Old Testament verse here, but he does allude to one in Psalm 143, verse 2, which says, In your sight, speaking to God, no man living is righteous. Now, what follows there in verse 20, the word because, explains why everyone is guilty with no defense and why everyone abides under God's wrath. Here's why. Because 
By the works of the law, no flesh, that is not one human being, shall be justified, that is, be declared right before God, receive a righteous standing or status in God's sight. Now, this would have surprised the Jews who were listening to Paul because the law promised life to the one who could keep it. Romans 2.13, the doers of the law will be justified. Romans 10.5, Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. They took that to mean that they could earn their way to heaven by their own efforts. But Paul here in verse 20 says that not only was keeping the law impossible, which it is, but it was never God's purpose for the law to justify anyone. Now, the key phrase is that little expression, the works of the law. That's a hotly debated phrase. We'll come back to that in weeks to come. But let me just define it for you. The works of the law simply means doing the works that the law requires. Doing the works that the law requires. Paul defines it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, where he equates the works of the law with abiding by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That's the works of the law. In addition, this phrase, the works of the law, is always used as the opposite of faith. Listen to Galatians 2.16. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Later in the verse. So that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So then... The works of the law, that expression refers to all human effort, even obedience to God's revealed commands. It speaks of any human effort to gain God's acceptance. Douglas Moo summarizes it this way. Nothing a person does, whatever the object of obedience or the motivation of that obedience, nothing a person does can bring him or her into favor with God. Do you understand that about yourself? There's nothing you can do to change your status of guilty. There's nothing I can do. No effort will change that status. Serving others, giving to the poor, coming to church, praying, reading your Bible, getting baptized, serving in the church. Those are all things commanded by the scripture. But doing those things will never change my status of guilty before God. You say, why is that? There's an illustration that has been used in many different places by many different authors, but I really like it. Imagine a ship manned by pirates. While they're out at sea, the pirates on that ship, they're largely civil to each other. They basically get along. They occasionally have scraps here and there, but for the most part, they get along with each other. They work hard toward a common goal. They're they're even loyal to each other up to a point. They help one another in many ways. They even defend each other, defend each other's lives at points. Those are good deeds. But all of their good deeds are at the same time evil deeds. Why? Because their entire lives are in rebellion against maritime law and against their government. Also, their good deeds are highly selective. They help only those like themselves. They actually rob and maim and murder those who get in their way. 
So even their kindness grows out of their rebellion. That's how it is with mankind's rebellion against God. We may do many things that appear to be good, but our good is actually bad because it's designed to maintain our rebellion against our authority, against the government of God. Let me put it a different way. The good deeds that we perform here only have value here. You might be admired by the people around you. You might receive accolades and even awards, honored. But those good deeds have no value to God. What if prisoners of war, prisoners of war decided they needed some barter system, and most of the time this happens. And so the prisoners of war decided in the prison camp they needed some barter system, and all they had was a monopoly game. And so they decided to use the monopoly money as their currency. This is going to be their monetary currency in the prison camp. And they buy and they sell and they trade based on this monopoly money currency. And it works for them. It has value in their world. But imagine when those prisoners of war are released and one of them takes his great wealth that he has amassed on Park Place or wherever it was, and he takes it to the nearest B of A. And he tries to cash it in. He will quickly discover that it is completely worthless outside of the prison camp. In the same way, our good works, including even our best obedience to God's moral law, our good works have absolutely no value in heaven. Perfection alone has value in heaven. So based on heaven's sense of value, where do we stand? What's our true condition? We are by nature morally and spiritually corrupt in every part of our being. We are utterly incapable of changing our nature, of doing anything that pleases God. We are unable to change our status, our standing of guilty before God. We deserve his punishment. In other words, we are utterly hopeless on our own. Do you want to know what God's judgment is of you apart from Christ? Well, Paul has laid it out here in vivid detail. In one sense, all of us have already had our day in court. God has already declared that we are responsible before his law, that we are guilty with no defense, that we abide under his just anger, that we're on death row, and that we're completely hopeless of making any change to our own situation. There's one final decision that's part of God's verdict. The end of verse 20, it's that we are fully aware of our true condition. We are fully aware of our true condition. Verse 20 ends this way, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Notice that for, we could say because, explains the reason that no one can be justified by keeping the law. It's because that was never God's intention with the law. Instead, his design was that through the law would come the knowledge of sin. You would learn what sin is. Now, the Greek word translated knowledge here is a word that refers to to more intimate, personal knowledge. There's a nuance of meaning in, in this word. In other words, what the law provides isn't some sort of cold, sterile, academic knowledge that somewhere out in the universe sin exists. Instead, the law brings an intimate, personal awareness of my own sin. 
Not only can I not earn justification by myself by keeping God's law, but even my best attempts to do so only point back at my guilt. They highlight my sin even more. The law defines sin, brings it out of its hiding place. The law shows us how bad it really is. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase of this verse, says, It is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. Think of God's law like a mirror. You have lots of mirrors in your house. Walk up to a mirror, and that mirror can never clean your face. All it can do is show you how dirty it is. That's God's law. It can't clean us. It wasn't intended to. It was intended to show us how dirty we are. What's the purpose of God's law for you if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ? It has three basic purposes if you're not a follower of Christ. Number one, it's supposed to awaken your conscience. Look at verse 20. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It was to show you your sin. It was to give you an intimate personal awareness of the fact that you can't make God happy with your own works. It was to awaken your conscience. Secondly, it's to drive you to Christ. Having seen that you can't do anything on your own, that the face in the mirror is dirty, it's to drive you to Christ. Galatians 3.24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Charles Hodge writes, the law was not designed to give life, but so to convince of sin that men may be led to renounce their own righteousness and trust in the righteousness of Christ as the only and all-sufficient ground of their acceptance with God. And the third purpose of the law in your life, if you're not a follower of Christ, is to leave you without excuse if you decide to reject the gospel. Look again at verse 19. You are under the law so that on the day of judgment, your mouth will be silenced and you will become liable to punishment before God. So apart from God's grace... Our day in court on the day of judgment would produce this multifaceted verdict. Through Christ, who will be the judge, God himself would declare every single one of us responsible before his law, guilty with no defense, abiding under his just wrath forever, hopeless to change our status or to do anything to make ourselves acceptable to him, and fully aware of our true condition but having ignored it and having done nothing about it. Listen, if you've never come to Jesus Christ, if you have never repented of your sins and believed in him, please understand this is exactly how God sees you this moment. You may have convinced yourself through some sentimental idea that you and God have some relationship but if you have not repented of your sins and put your trust in his son, John the apostle says on the authority of Jesus Christ that today as you sit in that pew, you are abiding under the anger of God and you're only storing up more every moment you breathe. Please understand, this is the bad news. This is the truth about you. Your only hope is the good news. In a nutshell, the good news is that if you are willing to leave your sin and embrace Jesus as your Lord, God will forgive your sin and he will save you. He will rescue you from his own coming wrath against you. And you can receive that solely by faith. You say, how can God do that? 
Well, we're going to learn in the next paragraph of Romans that he can do that because he, he accepts Jesus' death on the cross as the complete payment for your sin. And he puts Christ's perfection in your account and treats you as if you had lived Jesus' life. That's the gospel. And that's your only hope. I plead with you today, be reconciled to God. If you already belong to Christ, and that's most of us here, understanding this passage should produce several responses in you. Three of them, very quickly. Number one, if you understand that this would be you, this is how it would go with you, it should produce in you a profound sense of gratitude to God. Do you understand? This is you. This is me. This is how it would go for us. But Christ intervened. Should produce a profound sense of gratitude. Hebrews 13, 15, through Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Our whole lives should just bubble over with gratitude because of what he has rescued us from. It should produce holiness and service. Paul's going to get to that later in Romans after he gives all of the wonderful grace that God has given in salvation. He comes to chapter 12, verse 1, and the very first thing he says about our response to that is this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, you better remember, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You have been bought with a price. You belong to Christ. Your life is not yours to live as you choose. If you really understand how he intervened, then you'll get that. And you'll want to follow him. You'll want to love him. You'll want to serve him. Number three, understanding this passage should produce in you a deep concern for the people around you who are lost. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 20, 18 to 20. Paul says, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Notice this, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word or the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Is that how you think of yourself in this world? We are ambassadors for Christ as though, I love this, as though God were making an appeal to the people around us through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And of course, the message of reconciliation comes in verse 21, the, the next verse in chapter 5 of Second Corinthians. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's our message. So here are the legal implications of everything Paul has taught us so far in the first three chapters of Romans. Verses 19 and 20. But I want you to notice, verse 21, how the good news begins. But now. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series titled, Your Day in Court. 
Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. But Tom, before we end our time today, how about sharing a closing thought with us? You know, friend, can I just ask you, have you ever come to the place where you have realized how desperately you need the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's really what this passage is bringing us to. Paul, in the very next verse in Romans, gets to the good news. But to really appreciate the good news of the gospel that comes through Jesus Christ, that his life, death, and resurrection can make us right with our Creator, can bring the forgiveness of our sins, can initiate a relationship with God as Father. Before we can appreciate that good news, we first have to come to grips with the bad news, that there is nothing you and I can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. And if left to ourselves, we come to the judgment, we will have no hope. My prayer for you today, friend, is that you would cry out to the only one that can help, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem. Thanks, Tom. Church leadership can often seem like hazardous duty. Leaders can have both mountaintop experiences and seasons of discouragement. How can you, as a leader of Christ's church, faithfully respond to the different perspectives on leadership and the trials and triumphs of ministry? In Tom Pennington's book, Faithful Stewards, Tom identifies three key perspectives on church leadership that can help you maintain spiritual stability in ministry. Purchase your copy of Faithful Stewards today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.